All right. Um, we are going to continue our study of Genesis, and we are in chapter 30 and 31 today. I've entitled it, Schemers in the Hands of a Sovereign God. little play on Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but Schemers in the Hands of a Sovereign God. Um, you've heard the phrase, how do you stop fire? How do you fight fire with fire? How does that work, Jim? How do you fight fire with fire? It's possible, yeah. It's, picture a big raging forest fire, and then you light a fire in the path, and what you're doing is you're burning out all the fuel and the oxygen too, so when that big fire hits it, it dies, okay? That's fighting fire with fire. How do you fight a deceiver? with a better deceiver, okay? Um, Jacob, he's, he's born grasping the heel of his brother. Get back in here, right? And he tricks his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. He is a deceiver. But today we see that he runs right into Laban, his father-in-law, an even better deceiver, It's God using fire to fight fire. In fact, um, there's lots of scheming and deceiving going on in chapter 30 and 31. Uh, There's the wife swap scheme that Laban introduces. There's the sheep swap scheme that both Laban and Jacob participate in. Then there's the idol swap scheme that Rachel participates in. So we're going to look at each of these schemes and hopefully learn something about God in them. So first of all, let's talk about the wife swap scheme. Now, Caleb, who did a great job preaching last week, uh, talked about this, that uh, Jacob falls in love with Rachel. And he goes to her father, Laban, and says, I would like the hand of your daughter. And Laban says, oh, you can work for me for seven years. That's what it's going to cost you. Seven years of hard labor as a shepherd. And it says that he was so in love with her that the years just flew by. Isn't that romantic? Right? Um, so then it's the wedding night, and they have the big celebration. And then uh, uh, probably this is how it worked. Uh, they didn't have electricity back then, so it was dark. And the women wore a veil. And Laban hands the bride over to Jacob. They go into the tent. He wakes up the next morning. It's not Rachel. It's her not-so-great-looking sister, Leah. And he's horrified. And he goes storming out to to Laban and says, what's the deal? Laban says, oh, didn't you know that we give away the older daughter before the younger daughter? It's part of the rules around here. You... So then, then he says, uh, well, what do I do to get Rachel? Seven more years. Now, there's a little bit of a debate. Did he work seven more years before he could marry her? Or did he, as it says, finish out his week with Leah and then gets Rachel as his wife just at the end of that week and then has to work seven more years? Um, there's, a, there's a debate. Either way, 14 years of hard labor to get Rachel, really. Okay. Now, why would God allow this? Well, one way God humbles the proud is by having them meet their match. 
He's a schemer. He runs into a schemer. He's humbled. Um, now, Caleb did a great job last week, and everybody was like, you're so good, you're awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humble him a little bit right here, okay? <laughs> I told you about how when he was very young, he learned how to play chess and started beating me at an early age. So we started signing Caleb up for chess tournaments. And if you've ever, ever been to this, it's like you can go down to Navy Pier, and the whole, uh, the whole display showroom was filled with tables full of kids playing chess, and you sign them up, and they, it's an elimination tournament, so you play the first game, and if you win, you go on to the next, to the next, to the next. And we would sign him up for these, and he'd usually come home with a trophy. Right? I remember one day bringing him to, this was in Wheaton, I brought him to a school, and all the tables were lined up, and um, they'd like the parents to leave so we're not signaling the kids, move your queen. You know, so I go into the lunchroom, and I'm going to work on a sermon or something. Two minutes later, Caleb comes in crying. And what happened? I lost to a girl. <laughs> we got in the car and left. That was it. <laughs> um. So he's really smart, but sometimes God just gets him, right? You know, by a girl even. Wow. <laughs> All right, don't read too much into that. Um, so I think, I think one reason God uh, allows this to happen is to fight fire with fire, to humble scheming Jacob. But... I think God's able to multitask. In other words, I think God can allow an event to happen in your life, and it may have a dual purpose, or a triple purpose, or a quadruple purpose, or I don't even know what the five would be, but he may have multiple things going on in your life. So be careful that you don't go, oh, obviously this is what God is teaching me. Or some people like to be prophets and read into other people's life. And they go, oh, obviously the reason God allowed this to happen in your life is because, be careful, oh, wise know-it-all prophets. Because sometimes God has dual purposes for events. And I believe that the wife swap thing happened for two reasons. One, to humble Jacob. Two, to bless Jacob. You go, what do you mean? Well, remember, God promised Abraham, grandfather of Jacob, that he would be the father of a multitude. Well, we wait 100 years before Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac's 60 before he has Jacob and Esau. At this rate, it's going to take forever to be the father of a great nation, right? Well, God kind of steps things up here with Jacob. The the uh, wife swap thing brings not just two wives into the line, but actually Jacob marries Leah first, then Rachel, but they get the, uh, their, their slave girls are thrown in, Zilpah and Bilhah. So um, what happens is Leah 
gets pregnant first, and she has Reuben, then Simeon, then Levi, then Judah. Rachel's barren. She can't have a baby. So she does a Sarah. She says, I can't have a baby, but you can have my slave Bilhah. And they produce Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah says, well, if you can throw the slave girl in, you can have my slave girl, Zilpha. And they have Gad and Asher. Then Leah has two more, Issachar and Zebulon. And then finally, Rachel gets pregnant with Joseph, and then she has Benjamin and dies. Okay? But we go from a baby every hundred years or so to now 12 sons in a short amount of time. Okay? And then Dinah is the only girl. Imagine that poor girl. Now, um, Caleb last week mentioned that by the time of the Exodus, Israel was about two to three million people. Now, some skeptics have said, come on. How do you go from just a handful of people to two to three million people in 400 years? Well, let's do some math. Let's say each of these sons just produced four children, okay? Which, if God is blessing them, that would not be unreasonable to have four children, okay? And then if the next generation each had four children, how long would it take to produce three million people? Nine generations. In nine generations, that's three million people. So, what God is doing here is he's fulfilling his, he's humbling Jacob on the one hand, and he's fulfilling his promise that Abraham's going to be the father of a multitude, three million people, okay? So here's a, in connection time, I'm going to ask this question. Can you think of a specific event in your life that was used by God for multiple purposes? Maybe even opposite purposes, one to discipline you or rebuke you, but then when you look back, you see that it blesses you at the same time. Okay? Think about that. And think about that when you counsel other people, so you're not so quick to say, well, obviously God is doing, maybe you don't know what God is doing. Okay? All right, so first of all, there's the wife swap scam. So let's, let's move on to the sheep swap uh, scam or scheme. So here's what happens. 14 years, 13 children, and lots of sheep because he's a shepherd. The sheep are like just incredibly growing and lots of sheep. So he has servants over the sheep. So he is a, uh, uh, a very successful businessman, a very successful shepherd. But who's he working for? Father-in-law, Laban. It's really all, all the profits going to Laban. So at some point, Jacob says, you know what? I, I got to get out of here. I got to run my own life. He says, Laban, I want to leave. And Laban says, no, 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 no. You're, you're doing a great job. Let's make a deal. Name your price. And uh, Jacob says, oh, how about this? You don't pay me anything, but I get to keep the spotted, speckled, striped, and black sheep, and goats. And Laban goes, that's a pretty good deal. Because most of them are not spotted or speckled, and that's only a handful. Yeah, you can keep those. But then 
Laban, Mr. Schemer, you know what he does? Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. So he removes all the, uh, the spotted ones and gives them to his sons. So all that Jacob is left with are regular sheep. But Jacob, he comes up with his own scheme. Right? Here's his scheme. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. You go, does that work? No. Basically, here's his thinking. They mate where there's water. I'm going to put striped sticks in front of where they mate, and they'll have striped babies. That would be like a couple saying, let's put polka dot wallpaper in the bedroom, and we'll have polka dotted babies. There doesn't work. And I, so some people have said, well, look, the Bible's so stupid that they think that this is an actual animal husbandry method. No, no, it, it's not teaching that. What it's teaching is Jacob is an, an inherent schemer. He's always scheming. He's always planning, and this doesn't work. Okay. Well, doesn't it say that the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted? Yes, but why did the flocks bring forth? Lots of striped, speckled, and spotted. Well, even Jacob realizes later on that it had nothing to do with him. It's all because of God. Six more years passed, so 20 years total, and Jacob calls for his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He's going to talk to them, but he's afraid the room is bugged. So he says, meet me out in the field. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my fathers has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. See, even Jacob realizes it's not his, his stick peeling. It's God. Whenever Laban changed the, the terms, God would produce sheep of that type. Okay? Why... Would God allow Jacob to do the stick peeling thing and then bless him anyways? Well, sometimes God accommodates himself to our wrong or even sinful practices. Let me give you an example. When Jacob and Laban are negotiating wages, first of all, Jacob says, I want to leave. And Laban says this. 
I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Laban learned something true, that it was God who was blessing Jacob. How did he learn that? Through occultic practices, which are forbidden. Yet, God accommodated himself and spoke truth through that wrong practice. Okay? So, don't conclude that just because Laban did this thing with the, or, or Jacob did this thing with the sticks, that the Bible is saying that that's legitimate. Don't conclude that divination is legitimate. Remember Saul, King Saul, he forbids witchcraft, but then when he panics, what does he do? He goes to a witch to try to communicate with Samuel the prophet, and God allows true communication to take place. So be careful. Description in the Bible is not prescription. Just because God allows it to happen doesn't necessarily mean he is endorsing it. Okay? What are we to learn here? Or what is Jacob to learn here? God is teaching Jacob to stop trusting in his own scheming, in his own manipulating, and to trust God. It's a lot easier to live a life where you are relaxing in the sovereignty of God than trying to control and manipulate all the variables and all the people that are really outside of your control. God brought some of you here this morning to hear that. Stop trying to be in control of everyone and everything. Going to drive you cra- it's going to drive your family crazy. All right? Relax in the sovereignty of God. So, connection time question I want you to think about. Think of something, think of a matter that take, took place over this last year where you fretted and worried and even schemed, yet God had it all worked out. All right? Can you think of something like that? Maybe share it with us. All right. Third third scheme, the idol swap scheme. So Jacob decides we're, we're, we're going to escape. We're going to be like the Von Tropp family singers. We're going to get out of here. Right? It's a reference to the sound of music. Some of you. Um, he gathers all his flocks, all his, all his wives and children, and they get a... Uh, a three-day head start escaping back to the promised land. But Laban finds out. And Laban hops on a horse or a camel or a sheep or a donkey, whatever. And he catches up, and here's what happens. He says, Laban, And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Of all the things that Laban is most upset about, his idols are missing. Somebody stole my idols. Jacob answered and said to Laban, and they answered to your first issue, you know, why have you gone away? Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. But as to your second accusation, 
Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinmen, point out what I, uh, what I have that is not yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Rachel stole daddy's gods. Now, commentators uh, speculate, why did she take them? Now, on the one hand, you know, she's, she's raised amongst deceivers. Her dad's a deceiver. Her husband's a deceiver. She's learned well. Maybe she just stole them for their inherent value. Probably were made out of gold or silver. Think of a, a, an idol totally made out of gold. That's a small fortune. Okay. More likely, she's still caught up in the superstition of idolatry. So we're going to bring these gods along who will protect me. Or at least I'm going to steal them from my father so he can't use their power against me. All right? But whatever, she has stolen the idols and put them in her saddlebag of her camel right? and hidden them in her tent. Jacob doesn't know anything about this. And he says, hey, if you find anybody who has your idols, go ahead and kill them. So we have this dramatic scene here. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you For the way of woman is upon me. And once again, I will let you describe to your children what the way of woman is. Okay, but I I can't get up, Dad. I'm going to be sitting right here on this saddlebag here, but you can look at it anywhere. I can't stand up. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Why is this included? Well, there are a number of places in the Bible where God just simply mocks idols. You know, in essence, I think this is in there because God is saying, well, if your idols are so powerful, Laban, why don't they do something? Why don't they say, here we are in the saddlebag? Or why don't they strike Jacob down? They're, they're, they're powerless. Idols are Impotent. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah, God through Isaiah, mocks those who cut down a tree and build an idol out of it. Isaiah 44, 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it, the tree, I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it? An abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? <laughs> you, you, you make your, your, your lunch over half of it, but you carve the other half into a little idol? Do, do you really think it has any power whatsoever? Remember Elijah up on Mount Carmel, and he has a battle against the prophets of the false god, the idol Baal, and he says to them, all right, 
call on Baal and have fire come down from heaven. So they start dancing around and slashing themselves with swords and calling on, on Baal. And Elijah mocks their false god. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, you know, thinking, or he's relieving himself. Yeah, your, your God's going to the bathroom. Some of you are like, there is no place for bathroom humor in the Bible. Well, here there is, right? He's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Maybe he's traveling. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This is in here to show the impotence of idols. Now you go, yeah, people who have idols are so stupid. What's an idol, though? Let me give you a, a real simple definition. An idol is anything you place your ultimate trust in for provision, security, or happiness. An idol is anything you put your ultimate trust in for provision, security, or happiness. Is it wrong to have a job? No. Are you trusting in your job for your ultimate provision? Is it wrong to have a 401k? No. Are you trusting in your 401k for your ultimate security? Is it wrong to have a TV? Some people it is. But if your TV is what you long for most for happiness, that's a pathetic idol. So here's a connection time question. What is your biggest actual or potential idol in your life? What is your biggest actual or potential idol in your life? All right, so we've seen the three scams. How does this whole thing end? Jacob says his piece. He says, these 20 years I've been in your house, I've ser served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. We're going to see that God actually appeared to Laban earlier. So, so Jacob says, it's rather obvious, Laban, that God's on my side. What does Laban, okay, I, I, I titled this Reasonable Jacob. How does Laban respond? Irrational Laban. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. Wait a minute. I thought you gave your daughters away in marriage. They're not yours anymore. They're Jacob's. The, ch the, the, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. He thinks that he owns these children. The flocks are my flocks. No. You made a deal and you changed the deal a bunch of times, but God met the conditions. They're not your flocks. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Um, he is just being irrational. 
How is Jacob going to get out of this? You know, um, my wife helps me remember this. Sometimes I'll have a discussion with somebody, and I'll, I'll, I'll go, they just, they didn't see the, the, the reasoning. And, and she'll remind me, your problem, Brian, is you are assuming that people are always rational, and many people are just simply emotional. And all the reasoning in the world will not change their minds because it's not their minds that they're using. It's their remote. Here, here, Laban, it's not, uh, this is, all the reasoning in the world isn't going to change him. He's losing his stuff. He's losing his idols. He's losing his, his means of, of survival. Jacob has been a, a great employee. He's not thinking. He's just emoting here. So how in the world... Is Jacob going to be free of Laban, the monkey on his back? Well, God already took care of things. The night before, God appeared to Laban in a dream. And when Laban was talking to Jacob earlier, he reports this. He says to, Laban says to to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, he's already blown that, right? He had to to argue. He had to get his point in there, so he's already blown that. But he sees that God is on Jacob's side. So here's what happens. God prompts Jacob. Laban to make a covenant, an agreement, a treaty to agree to disagree. All right? here's, here's how it goes. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shahadalath. <laughs> Guttural. But Jacob called Galid. Jacob said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid, or witness. And Mizpah, which means watchtower. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Now, this is one of these verses that sometimes... You know, you go to the Christian store, and half the store is books, and the other half is trinkets. And, yeah, there's the little, the little refrigerator magnets, or the, you know, and the Lord watch over you and me. In the original context, this was not, may the Lord watch over you and bless you. It's, may God strike you dead if you violate this covenant, Okay. The Lord, watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. So they set up these pillars. You know, Jacob's really into the pillar thing. And they make a covenant. And they actually eat together. Part of the covenant is a meal. They Uh, ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren 
and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. God rescues Jacob through an agreement to disagree. I may have told you this story before. Um, when I was in junior high, uh, I had a bully pick on me. I was a kid in shop class. He would actually, you know, they had the metal, uh, metal cutting thing, and, and then he would make this sharp pointer, and he would come after me and scrape me with it. And then when nobody was looking, he'd punch me. I got to the point I didn't want to go to school anymore. My next-door neighbor was Mr. Rotolo. You know Mr. Rotolo? Yeah. They named the middle school, Sam Rotolo Middle School. So my parents knew that I was upset, so my dad called Mr. Rotolo. And one day at school, I hear uh, Will, Brian Smith and the bully, they didn't say the bully, but Brian Smith and his bully come to Mr. Rotolo's office. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, no, what's this all about? So I go down, and uh, now Mr. Rotolo, he was very cool. He, um, he didn't want to make it sound like he was rescuing me, so he said, well, I hear that you two are having some problems here, and um, I don't want there to be any more problems. Can you two please shake hands? And Brian, you don't pick on him, and Bully, you don't pick on Brian. You, you agree? And we shook We made an agreement to disagree, and that kid never picked on me anymore. Why? Because he knew that the most authoritative person in the school, Mr. Rotolo, had my back. By the way, on the way out the door, Mr. Rotolo said, Brian, come here. Yeah? He goes, if he picks on you again, haul off and punch him in the nose. But didn't have to do it. Didn't have to do it. Because of the treaty. Okay? So here's the question. Can you think of a time God rescued through an agreement to disagree? You know, well, shouldn't Christians always, always get... You know, Jesus seemed to have a lot of disagreements with Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. Paul seemed to have a lot of disagreements with... Sometimes you just have to agree to disagree, and God uses a treaty, a covenant to agree, to disagree, and Jacob is now free. At least for today. He's free of Laban pursuing him. Now he's got to worry about Esau, who's coming after him, and we'll, we'll look at that uh, in, in two weeks. Now, um, all of these, the scheming and scamming and all that, God is sovereign over it all. He uses even the sinfulness of man to bring about his purposes, which leads us to the cross. On one hand, you say, who's responsible for Christ's death on the cross? Well, God is. He sent him into the world to die on the cross. From a human perspective, though, there was scheming and scamming going on. In fact, the early church prays, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered against or gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here were the schemer. There was a conspiracy to arrest Jesus, to set him up, to trap him. Judas was in on it. Caiaphas was in on it. Um, Actually, Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with it, but politically they handcuffed him, right? Herod was in on it. There was a conspiracy, right? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here again, we have that... Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man, how does it fit together? I don't know. But they are accountable for their scheming. Yet God worked it all together for your and my salvation. 